Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos, and we have an amazing guest today. Uh, long-term uh, friend as well as mentor, uh, luminary in the cybersecurity space from about a dozen different angles. Uh, I'd like to introduce Bill Kroll. It's a pleasure to be here, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks so much for being here, Bill. And uh, you're you're such a wealth of knowledge every time uh, we have a conversation. I never know what's, where it's going to end up. And that's what I love about talking with you. Uh, but just to kick things off and give our listeners a little bit of background about who you are and you know how you got into security yourself, maybe you could give everybody uh, you know your background. Uh, okay. Well, uh, the logical place to start is that I was recruited uh, by the National Security Agency right off campus um, upon graduating from Louisiana State University, uh, which, by the way, just got certified as a cyber center for NSA. Which is oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, and, and so I went to uh, NSA and I had a lot of different jobs um, during my time at NSA. Um, my most important ones having to do with uh, uh, dealing with intelligence on the Soviet Union, um, intelligence on weapon systems worldwide. Um, and uh, I built a lot of the intelligence gathering systems for the military uh, SIGINT forces. Um, my career took me outside NSA at one point. I left the agency, uh, went to the aerospace industry to uh, actually be involved in designing satellites. And um, after a short stint at that, which was successful, by the way, I went back to uh, NSA and served as the uh, chief of staff and the direct, uh, the uh, uh, the deputy for the deputy director for operations and ended my career there as the deputy director of the agency. So uh, it was a whirlwind um, tour of everything cyber um, uh, and everything signals intelligence. So uh, I had 34 years of, of uh, exciting times. Yeah, 34 years of which smack dab in the middle was the Cold War. So your stories have stories. <laughs> uh, yes. So my my greatest job actually was serving as the head of the organization that was focused on the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And I got to see that war end in that job. So it was a, it was a great uh, a great run. Amazing, amazing. Uh, so you know. Bill, just at, at a high level, you've had exposure to so many areas within the public sector, the private sector, um, you know, a, as an investor and board member, CEO of publicly traded companies, you've, you've really done it all. So just kind of looking broadly at the cybersecurity landscape and the threats and trends and priorities, um, what, what are you seeing as sort of the hot topics now? And has that changed over the years, or is it pretty much the same? You know, what's, what's your view on that? Uh, it's, it's changed, but it's changed within a framework that I think most of us who have been in this business a while understand. 
Uh, that framework being the essential elements of cybersecurity, authentication of people, encryption of data, uh, countering uh, threats uh, like viruses and, and malware and so on. Um, and, and, and so the evolution has been within those uh, different elements of the framework of, of cybersecurity. Um, what's interesting is the way it is changed so as to impact our society. What's really changed is us. We now rely on the Internet and we rely on it for everything from financial services to uh, uh, the, the area you're involved in now, which is uh, OT or IOT, uh, which is the use of the Internet to provide uh, physical uh, control of things, whether it's manufacturing or physical security like cameras or uh, the lighting within buildings. Uh, and that's become a new foundation uh, for a whole area of cyber, uh, one that you and I actually predicted uh, when we co-authored uh, co a book in 2007. Can you believe it's been that long? I can't believe it's 2007, and I can't believe we were talking about, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could combine network access control with door locks and security cameras? And we, 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 were, we were about a decade ahead of where the technology could keep up with the ideas, I think. <laughs> Actually, more than a decade. Uh, <laughs> if you count the years, it's been 15 years since that book was published. Wow. And the interesting thing is that um, when I was CEO of Silank, uh, which was a uh, a security company that focused primarily on encryption and uh, public key infrastructure and those kind of things. Uh, my chairman was a uh, was the chairman also of a very very large physical security company, and he challenged me at one point to, well, what would you do if you married those two uh, two areas, cybersecurity and and physical security? And so I. I actually had my team build the first um, smart card oriented uh, access control system that controlled both uh, physical access to buildings and logical access to computers. Oh, nice. Here's a really interesting thing. That was 2001 okay. and we couldn't find anybody who would buy it. <laughs> it was not attractive to them to combine those two areas then. You and I co-authored the book on the convergence of physical and logical security. And since then, there's a lot of focus on the convergence. And it's, uh, it's quite remarkable uh, how much focus there is today. Um, several of my companies are involved in, in uh, trying to deal with the threats to physical systems as well as logical systems. Yeah. And... You know, Bill, it'd be hard to not talk about kind of ripped from the headlines current events here with with the war in, in Ukraine. I just I, th I think in terms of all of your focus on Russia and and with within the war that we're seeing happen before our eyes. And then you think in terms of cyber physical kind of devices and systems and things. Are you seeing anything there that if you were in the NSA today during this time, that surprises you or, or is it fairly predictable or any thoughts and comments around what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and specifically some of the, some of the attacks and threats that we're seeing happen there? Is, is there any interesting things there that, that you could talk about? 
I think that uh, it would be fair to say that there have been no cybersecurity, cyber attack surprises mm. in Ukraine. Um, I follow it very closely with uh, the commercial companies that I'm involved with. So obviously, I'm not going to talk about anything I may know otherwise. Um, but um, most of the attacks by the Russians on the Ukrainians have been pretty conventional, mm-hmm. mostly uh, distributed denial of service kinds of attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they demonstrated in earlier years the ability to impact their energy system, but notice that all of the energy attacks have been physical, kinetic, right. and not and and not uh, cyber oriented. So no, I don't think we've learned very much from that. Uh, they, I don't know whether they have held back or whether they just had a better um, an opponent who was better at defending. Yeah. And that, by the that's... way, the Ukrainians are very good at defending their systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Ukraine very publicly was one of the the first countries to um, experience broad and deep cyber attacks, right? Against their, against their. No, um, no. That goes back to Estonia. Yeah. Estonia uh, as well. Which yeah. was yeah. Uh, attacked very broadly and very deeply, uh, but defended itself uh, remarkably well. Uh, and also Georgia. Uh, yep. in, the, in the war that uh, involved the Chechens in, in Georgia. So, no, it's, it's, it's not new. It, it actually is more subdued than it was in both Estonia and Georgia, in my opinion. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, I, I guess if you're in the middle of a kinetic attack, the, the idea of launching a, a cyber attack might not, have, might, might not be as necessary, perhaps. And what they're doing, or or who knows who who knows the approach, or or maybe it's just a, a question of focus and and what they're trying I, to I achieve. The question of uh, of how you do combined arms warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guarantee you, if the you know, if the U.S. goes to war, it's going to be a combined attack sure. on all fronts. You know, information warfare, cyber warfare, and kinetic warfare. Absolutely. Well, let's let's pivot a little bit to. XIOT, and we, we've touched on it a tad, but when we say XIOT at Phosphorus, we're really talking about three distinct but but also interrelated areas. The first one is traditional I, enterprise IoT, so voice over IP phones, door locks, printers, cameras. The next is OT, SCADA devices, PLC, industrial control systems. You see in manufacturing and uh, uh power distribution and generation, transportation, things of that nature. And the last one is just general network devices, switches, wireless access points, load balancers, network attached storage. Collectively, these are embedded devices, purpose-built, and uh, they're network-connected, usually. And they're usually very vulnerable because they were installed by somebody that drove up with a truck, bolted in a bunch of security cameras, doesn't really think anything about cybersecurity, and they get up and running, and they're highly vulnerable. But most of these guys tend to be Linux, Android, BSD. On the OT side, things like um, uh, VxWorks and things like that. My question for you is: We here on this on this podcast understand the threat level associated with XIoT devices across all those spectrums. Do you feel that business leaders, and not necessarily talking about security leaders yet, but have business leaders caught up to this? Do they? understand the threats intrinsic to XIOT like they understand phishing attacks and malware and 
denial of service and some of these things these days? Now, Brian, I'm, I'm not trying to be unkind to business leaders. But quite frankly, business leaders don't even understand cyber attacks. Uh, they don't understand ransomware. They don't understand um, solar winds kinds of attacks and, and how yeah. extensive they are. So, no, they don't understand IoT at all. I mean, they think that the light switches uh, are just like they were uh, 20 years ago, you know, physically hardwired. Mm-hmm. And the fact that most buildings today are becoming smart buildings uh, in which everything from the lights to the switches to the um, to the timing of all of those things is automated over yeah. um, Internet protocol uh, networks. Mm. And so from that, Bill, would you say, given that, I think you're pretty ac- pretty accurate there, is that probably why, given your focus on nation states, nation states, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, others are focusing on XIOT devices as a major attack vector? I mean, is that, do you think that's one of the reasons why they're focusing on that? Because they know nobody's really looking at it or considering it? Is, is that safe to say? Well, of course, it's that's true because what does an attacker do? An attacker focuses on whatever is left unprotected. And if there's not a lot of attention being given to XIOT or IOT or OT, then that's where the attacker is going to going to go. Um, you know, having been a, an attacker in my past, um, you look for the the targets who don't practice good cyber hygiene. Mm-hmm. And now that cyber extends to OT and IOT, um, you know, it's it's quite likely that most organizations are are not practicing good cybersecurity hygiene um, on those systems. Uh, I mean, how I, I, I'm sitting here in my home, I have 68 devices on my home network, um, eight of which are cameras, um, and um, I'm a cybersecurity specialist. How much attention do you think I spend on the security of those camera systems? I kind of I kind of think, well, you know, they're outside facing outward. Uh, they're not inside facing inward. So I'm not really concerned that somebody robs me of some of my video. Um, but uh, it's also true that people who have extensive camera systems focus both outside and inside probably don't give a lot of thought to how to protect Yeah. And, we- and by the way, they believe the, the stuff, <laughs> wrong word, but never that, the stuff that uh, those cameras are encrypted end-to-end and fully protected. That's, you know, that's BS. That's a dangerous uh, thing to assume, for sure, as you, as you all know. We, we've actually seen, uh, just this year even, cases where the security cameras, when people would switch them off, all they would do is switch the green light to red, and they were still recording video, they were still recording audio, and in many of those cases, they were still streaming that audio and video off to different remote locations in different countries. And a lot of these cameras, to your point, are also inward facing. Some of these are embedded into um, TV screens and their conferencing systems within executive boardrooms and in other locations within, that are very sensitive. So there's a lot of information that can be gleaned there when facing facing inwards. Uh, I guess my question is, we're seeing this now and we're seeing this on the enterprise side and people taking note and and taking steps to remediate those risks. Uh, is that something that 
you have had experience that you've seen these types of th- th- cameras being used against people um, in the past? And maybe this has been going on for decades. I don't know. But is, have, have cameras been utilized against individuals before? Well, cameras until about 20 years ago, 20, mm-hmm. 25 years ago, were essentially um, hardwired using coax cable. Mm-hmm. They, they were closed systems. Uh, Was it possible to get to them? The answer is uh, in some cases, because a lot of them, all that coax came into a a, a box uh, that was then connected to the Internet so somebody could remotely view it all. Um, There were probably some uh, attacks back in those days of the hardwired coax uh, cameras, uh, but not like today. Today, it's it's fairly routine for someone to go after a camera if it provides them with the kind of information that they really want. So as an example, mm-hmm. uh, you, you use the, uh, uh, the example of the camera on the, uh, on the internal devices like conference rooms. I have a camera, <laughs> which I should put a pasty over, uh, uh, that Sony provided. It's part of the system on my Sony 55-inch monitor. And I've never covered it up, and I've never gone in to turn it off. Part of the reason is um, I don't do anything that's really sensitive, right? Well, that's not entirely true. I'm on the boards of many companies. We have board meetings now via uh, Zoom and Teams and WebEx. And and so those cameras are on. I mean, I've come to understand just how uncovered um, these communications are. First of all, the cameras are accessible. Secondly, the sessions with Zoom and WebEx and all of those are not end-to-end encrypted. Uh, they've had to admit that in a couple of cases. And uh, so we're vulnerable and and the sensitive information of business operations um, can get exposed. Um, do I think that the Russians are interested in uh, business operations? Well, yes, because some of the companies I'm involved with are cybersecurity companies. Are they interested in cybersecurity and the defenses that we have? Absolutely. Um, but also, there, there are people who are nefarious enough to actually try and gather information uh, about competitors. And so there are all these different threats. Yeah. That. Yeah, that's very well put, Bill. And one one of the other attacks, so of course there's the attacks that impact the physical world and and we just talked about cameras for spying, you can unlock or lock doors, um, you know, impact HVAC systems, stop elevators, there's a whole number of things. And when you go to the OT side, you know, you're talking about real destruction, blowing things up, so on and so forth. But there's another line of attacks that seems to be growing in popularity that we're seeing, and these are pivot attacks where for example, an attacker might get into an organization through a phishing attack and get onto someone's laptop. And that might be through an email, um, social media, messaging app, what have you. But they've got some malware, it's on a laptop, and they can control that individual's laptop within the organization. Now, the attackers don't stay there. That's simply their entry point in. Then they start scanning for XIOT devices, whether it's a voice over IP phone, printer, wireless access point, network attached storage, and they they look for those devices. And again, they're, they're Linux, Android, BSD. They log on to those devices because usually the passwords are default. And if they're not, most of them run level 8, 9, and 10 vulnerabilities because the firmware hasn't been upgraded in six years, and a lot of them are end of life. 
And there's a huge attack surface because there's about three to five XIOT devices per employee. So 10,000 person company, roughly 50,000 devices, at least half of which have default passwords. <laughs> so there's a big attack surface. So they look for these devices, they log in, they load their tools, they know that they can maintain persistence, they know they can evade detection. And then from those XIOT devices, maybe they make API calls to uh, local exchange servers or Office 365 in the cloud. Maybe they access um, other data stores and they take that data, compress it up and exfiltrate it out. Those are the types of attacks using XIOT devices to hide and exfiltrate sensitive data that seems to be really top of mind right now. And I know the nation states have taken notice of this. You know, Russia, the Russian FSB, of course, had the tool called Fronten built for them by some contractors, which was famously later stolen and released to the world on torrents. So if you can read Russian, uh, you can actually have access to a nice nation state designed XIOT hacking tool. Well, um, yeah, Google Translate, you're good. <laughs> there you go. Yes, and Google Translate, you're good to go. <laughs> So we we know nation states are focusing on this, but I think this is the I think this is the a huge Achilles tendon for organizations because that massive XIOT footprint coupled with the fact that they're so vulnerable and no one's watching them, Bill. It's kind of like IT security in 1995 equals XIOT security in 2022. It's really in the nascent years, and you know, patching, credential management, hardening. It just hasn't been done to this date. And I think it's going to bite a lot of people, to be quite honest, because it's a great entry point. Well, I, I totally agree with everything you've laid out. Um, I, would just, uh, I would just put a couple of amendments out there. One is that most of these IoT devices don't have enough memory and don't have enough processing power to actually become a persistent in, entry point um, and so what they really do is they try to use that point to, to laterally move into more uh, heavily uh, to, to points in the network that have more processing power and more memory. And, and then they keep the IoT place as a place to reconstitute if they should lose the new place that they mm -hmm. laterally move to. Yeah. Uh, but the, it's the lateral move that enables them to be really, really effective against uh, these networks. If they don't do the lateral move, then they're not going to be able to exfiltrate large uh, amounts of data. And, um, and so they'll, but, but it is a persistent point of entry. And, and I think you're right that it's, uh, it's, it's a danger to uh, large corporations that have lots and lots of IoT devices. Yeah. And, and by the way, you can't protect every one of those IoT devices with security software for the same reasons. Uh, they don't have a lot of memory and they don't have a lot of processing power. So uh, it's a conundrum. Yep. Yeah. And, and of course, we talk a lot about what you can do. And, and even as, as Brian mentioned, you know, upwards of 50% of all these, you know, there's billions of these XIoT devices out there. Are, are deployed with default credentials and that alone just as a baseline and some of the vulnerabilities and you don't have to be particularly uh an eloquent hacker to go uh exploit a you know uh uh a cv nine or ten you know cv vulnerability that and you know uh on on these devices um 
So there are some basic things we can try to do. But one of the things that I'm wondering, you know, in your work, I mean, today you're, you work, you know, obviously your background with the NSA, but you also talk and work with enterprises. Are enterprises and agencies, government side, do they communicate today? What is that like from a cybersecurity perspective? Are they communicating together on what they're learning with each other? Is is that a channel of communication you see that's open between big enterprises and government agencies or not at all? Brian and I have had this conversation in past podcasts. And you know, the really, really great news, Brian, is it's finally happening. Oh, nice. Um, in in the opportunity I had last week to get updated on where things were with regard to cybersecurity and industry, it's very, very clear that NSA now has the authority to help the defense industrial base, the so-called DIB, um, improve their cybersecurity stance. And they have an unclassified center uh, where Contractors uh, who work for these defense industrial base companies can come and exchange information. And by the way, they also get to do it online in real time, 24 hours a day. And that's an incredible advance. And there's cooperation also between DHS, CISA, CISA, uh, and NSA uh, in the critical infrastructure area. So there finally is an opening up of a dialogue between the very, very excellent technical expertise of uh, the U.S. government in both DHS and NSA and um, and industry. Not all of industry, uh, but but a sufficient point, a part of it, that uh, it covers our critical nodes. Well, and it has to start somewhere. I think the last time we talked about this, and I, I'm. I, I'm a big fan of InfraGuard, but a lot of these things took place in, well, you can go to these monthly InfraGuard meetings that uh, bring together uh, public and private sector. And uh, at the same time, if you want, here's, here's a phone number where you can call somebody and maybe they'll get back to you. It, it was a little, it was a little uh, uh, asynchronous. Uh, but now that it's online, it's 24 by 7. That's, that's actually pretty amazing. Well, and there also is... Uh uh, an incredible uh, change in the posture and the knowledge and training that the FBI has. Mm. And that's making a big difference too, because ultimately you, you want to deter to all of this stuff. And so prosecution is a, is an important deterrent uh, to uh, cyber attacks. Yeah. You know, I want to talk a little bit about OT, so the industrial control system side of the house. Um, Fifteen or so years ago, we were involved with Project Logic, which was linking oil and gas companies with uh, like MIT and, and Carnegie Mellon, and then some big cybersecurity companies, ArcSight, Symantec, others like that, kind of coming together and trying to help address this problem. And we we made a little bit of movement back then. Um, but when I, when I go out and I'm meeting with oil and gas, power and energy, transportation, water, all, all these folks, and there's some industries which move a little bit quicker than others, uh, I'm actually surprised that we haven't made as much advancement as I thought we would have. We, we've, we have made strides, for sure. And I think cybersecurity is a conversation that's being had uh, on the OT side, uh, where it used to just be on the IT side and the OT folks where we don't have time for this. Uh, but I was recently in the Middle East, 
And they seem to embrace this concept of needing cybersecurity uh, measures around their OT devices. And uh, th- th- I'll just say it this way. They're much more open to the idea and they're, they're open to it in terms of they're investing time and they're investing dollars into actually addressing it at what I feel is a, a, a much more rapid rate that I'm seeing in other parts of the world. And I just kind of wanted to get your hot take on that. Why maybe in the Middle East, they're more open to making these investments in cyber, where in other parts of the world, they're maybe a little bit more hesitant and they're a little bit more, hey, we're all about availability. We don't want to put any cybersecurity controls in there that might impact that as, as they should be thinking. But maybe because of that, they're not moving as quickly as they should be. Well, I haven't been to the Middle East in a while, but um, I see the pictures. <laughs> and uh, they're building uh, smart cities, and we aren't yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they're building smart buildings. I mean, some of them, the tallest building in the world. Um, and they're very, very smart. You know, everything is automated inside of those buildings. And so I think they understand the vulnerability a lot better mm-hmm. uh, than we have because it's been piecemeal in this country, uh, whereas it's a focus in those countries. I mean, Dubai in particular has an, an incredible focus on security. I have a, a friend who has been a consultant to uh, Dubai for a number of years, and uh, they they essentially sit down and build an architecture for cybersecurity at the same time they're building the architecture for the building. Yes. Security development life cycles are built into the buildings and the cities and the ships, which it blows my mind that we're, we're we're not seeing that everywhere, but they're 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 going fast. Yeah. But, but you stimulated a thought that I'd like to put on the table, and that is, um, we are thinking, and you and I are now talking about IT and OT like they're separate. And let me give you an example of where they're not separate: the Colonial Pipeline attack. It was a mm-hmm. ransomware attack. It was intended to hold Colonial Pipeline um, hostage until they paid a ransom. There was no, this is my opinion. This is not knowledge, it's an opinion. I do not believe that the attackers intended to take down the delivery of oil and gas to the entire Eastern coast. I believe that they attacked the administrative system, which is what they attacked, not knowing that if the administration uh, administrative system couldn't bill for the oil and gas that they would have to shut down the oil and gas system. And so we we aren't paying enough attention to how these things interlock and how they uh, inter and they are influenced by each other. And so Colonial Pipeline was an attack against an administrative system that merely did the billing, but caused the company to shut down all of the plumbing. Right. So we need to learn some lessons from that. Yeah. Well, and and with that, when we think in terms of, we talked about it earlier that as you as you mentioned, Bill, you can't put Tanium or CrowdStrike or endpoint agents on these XIoT devices. They're but yet they're purpose built and they're network connected and they've got loads of vulnerabilities and there's a lot of areas and elements about them that that we can pay attention to and do something about but when when you think in terms of you know what you made a great point i mean these 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 devices are interconnected you can you can attack one and it there can be collateral damage on another and and so forth 
When you think in terms of what we can do to fix it, to date, there's a mindset that we can try to discover these devices and you can tell me how how bad they are and uh, how insecure they are. But uh, when we think in terms of doing something about it, um, to date, there's been a mindset that can't really do much about it. But of course, at Phosphorus and now when we think in terms of XIOT, kind of more proactive remediation security, there are some things we can do. Obviously, we can we can rotate the credentials. We can harden these devices. You know, turn off extraneous ports and protocols. We can update certificates. We can actually upgrade and downgrade firmware. Do you see that as helpful um, in 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 actually trying to do something about fixing these devices? Uh, do you see that as helpful? And do you think agencies in the government and therefore private sector as well might uh, think that that's useful? Well, of course, it's helpful. Um, but it's not the only solution. It's not the only path to a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to be combined with, uh, with good hygiene. I mean, I, one of the things I started saying many years ago for the cloud was a, a really popular thing. People didn't want to move to the cloud. They said the cloud's going to be insecure. I, I started giving speeches where I said, cloud will be more secure than your own enterprise networks. And the reason why is because you don't have any idea what you've got in your enterprise network. You have no discovery tools that will tell you who has put something into your network yesterday that you didn't know about. Um, And by the way, the somebody can be your own employees who are just doing their jobs and adding stuff to the network that you don't know about and that you aren't protecting. And and so the cloud becomes a way of handling the large enterprise problems, maybe not the OT problems uh, in their entirety because of the need for for seven nines performance Mm -hmm. uh, on a lot of the OT devices. You don't want the light switches being, you know, turned on and off a hundred times a day um, in people's workspaces. Um, and, and so you, you have to be very careful about what you offload into the cloud. But the cloud becomes a way of, of strengthening the security surrounding the enterprise administrative networks. Also, it, the cloud is excellent for doing AI kinds of things and machine learning kinds of things and for offloading a lot of the big uh, processing loads. The OT world is a different world. You have to look at it differently, but then you have to think about how it integrates with and interoperates with uh, the administrative IT network. And and so we go back to architecture. What it really takes is somebody who understands all of this well enough that they sit down and they build an architecture that says, okay, Here's this part of our network. Here's what it does. And here's how I'm protecting it. Here's this other part of my enterprise operations. And here's how I'm going to protect them. And here are the interfaces between those two things. And here's how I'm going to protect them. That's not really done a lot. Uh, I don't know many. First of all, I don't know many CIOs who will let CISOs have enough authority to get that done uh, because the CIO is all about performance and uptime and and uh, and, and making sure the the trains are running and the CISO is worried about 
entries and and attacks and and so on. And those two are not aligned with each other because there are some some performance hits that are going to be taken when you do security properly. So that's why we need kind of a total architecture approach. And the book that we wrote, Brian, was intended to tell people they had to start thinking. About. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bill, obviously we could we could talk for hours and hours. I, I love your your perspectives and your vision on these topics. But uh, as we wrap up, just one one final uh, question here, closing thoughts, if you will. Uh, so for those of our listeners that are out there and they're you know they're concerned about XIOT security and whether it's in the OT side or the enterprise IOT side, any any words of advice or directions or or, or ideas that you'd like to leave with them? Uh, well, I think the biggest problem facing us for the future is one that they can help solve, but they can't solve. Uh, and that is the availability of the talent that we need to do the work. Uh, there are over 500,000 cyber jobs that are unfilled in the U.S. today, Over, well over a million worldwide. Uh, that's become a really, really serious problem. Uh, and trying to develop a cadre uh, of people who understand and, and can flourish in this business has become something that's just as important um, as it was when people tried to convert from accounting to enterprise uh, accounting, to enterprise operations. Um, and, and so we need to have uh, companies, um, enterprises concentrating on acquiring and developing talent. There's no reason why every cybersecurity specialist in the world has to come from a college or university. Uh, there are, I can tell you from having visited the Cyber Command, that there are a lot of high school graduates joining the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marine Corps and Coast Guard um, that um, become great cyber warriors. And uh, they learn quickly, uh, They uh, and they want to learn quickly. <laughs> uh, and they, they are incentivized to become experts. and. So they should step back from all the problems they have on a day-to-day -day basis and ask the question, what can we do to foster the development and education of more cyber uh, people in the country? Yeah, it's a great advice, Bill. Great discussion. It's just And I haven't told many stories, Brian. Well, tell do, do one story. Do, do, give, give, give the people one story, Bill. So one. many. Any that you remember that I should put on the deck? You know, I, I remember talking about the great seal with you. And uh, that was carved oh, yeah. out of wood with a little diaphragm in there. Yeah, the great If If any of your listeners have not been to the National Cryptologic Museum, uh, they really ought to go. It's located at Fort Meade. It's on a piece of land that you can access without having to have a guard shoot you. Um <laughs> And it's a it's a really great place. I was there Friday. Um, uh, they've re recently redone it, um, and they have some splendid displays. All of World War II successes, uh, breaking Japanese and uh, purple code and the German enigma and so on. Um, but um, one of the displays there is the uh, the gift to the ambassador of the United States. Um, I'm sorry, the ambassador from the United States to uh, the Soviet Union at the time. Um, 
April Harriman, I believe, was the ambassador at the time. And it was a hand-carved wooden great seal of the United States. And it was a beautiful piece of work. I mean, very nicely done. Uh, in But it hung in the ambassador's office for years and unknown to the ambassador or anyone else for that matter. Inside was a uh, a, a little cavity um, and a and a bar that served as an antenna, and the Soviet uh, guys would beam microwave signals at this device, and as sound in the room caused the uh, the diaphragm to vibrate, it would cause the little antenna to vibrate, and the microwave could pick up those vibrations, and so they were listening to everything that happened in the ambassador's office. It's it's a delightful thing to look at because it was a it was a genius piece of equipment um, at the time. Uh, all I would ask your listeners to think about is uh, how much has technology advanced since then? <laughs> it's like the original Trojan horse. That was uh... <laughs> yeah, it, it was. <laughs> that's incredible. Ah, <laughs> uh, amazing story. Uh, great discussion. I, I think the other story I've told you, and it's one that people can go and look up online, is the story of Venona, V-E-N-O-N-A, which was um, NSA's predecessors and NSA broke the AGB and GRU codes that were used from 1943 to 1948. And uh, that information provided insight into uh, the Soviet um, spy rings inside the United States. There were about 200 cover names that were recovered from those messages, 60 of whom were actually identified to specific individuals. Um, and you would probably recognize some of those names. Wow. Um, mm. uh, the Green Glasses, the, uh, Julius uh, and Ethel Rosenberg, um, he was Antenna. She didn't have a cover name. Um, the first message ever read was about her and how she helped her husband with his work. So <laughs> all the people who debated about whether or not she was uh, guilty, uh, that message. Uh, message one. Message. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So, anyway, it's been a delight, Brian. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Bill. Awesome, Bill. Thank you for the discussion. Thanks, it was John. just wonderful to have you with us. Uh, we, we, I think, I think we agree. We need to get you back again for more of the stories. So, thanks again to Brian, our host, as well as Bill Crowell, our guest. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure. Thanks. And remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive, full scope security for the extended Internet of Things. And until we meet again, I'm John Vecchi, and I'm Brian Contos. See you next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast. Podcast.